So if you go ahead and remain standing, we're going to look now at the Bibles. You'll find the church Bible uh, under the pew rack in front of you or right, um, right uh, underneath your seat either way. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, I'm going to read it out as well. Uh, it's on page 884 in the church Bibles. And those of us who've been following along for this series, we've called it Easter, you'll never forget. And the reason for that is because in Luke's Gospel... He writes, he says, the whole book, this, the story of the life of times of Jesus the Messiah, he writes so that you might know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. In other words, if you're here and you grew up in a Christian home, but you're not sure whether it's really true, this is for you. Luke is saying, I can persuade you that these things are really true, but not just intellectually true, also that you might know it in your heart and be changed by it and really convinced by it, it might impact your life, give you hope and joy and meaning. All that is Luke's purpose. We saw on Palm Sunday, he describes how Jesus goes into the city and offers peace, and some people accept it, some people don't. The city of peace, Jerusalem, the foundation of peace. Ironically, some don't accept it in Jerusalem. And then we saw on Good Friday how Jesus from the cross, he's hanging there, and amazingly, he says, what a beautiful, astonishing Savior, amazingly, he says, from the cross, Father, forgive them. And uh, we said on Good Friday, we're going to consider what he means by that and how it is that we can have forgiveness. And so that's what we're looking at, and the title of the sermon is How to Find Forgiveness. And I can read now from Luke chapter 24, from verse 36 through to verse 49. As they, that is uh, the disciples, were talking about these things, they're referring to the walk to Emmaus when Jesus has suddenly appeared and some of the disciples come back and say, look, wow, what's happened? So as they, the disciples, were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were still startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is God's Word. Amen. You may grab a seat. Beginning from Jerusalem, he proclaimed these things, the forgiveness of sins. The message that we have then this morning is how to find forgiveness. And it is the message that I want to say, and I want to make this claim right at the beginning, that I think it is the most important issue that is facing us today as people in America, as people in Wheaton, as Christian people, as people perhaps who are not yet Christians, this issue of forgiveness, above all, is the most important matter that we are facing today, I think. I mean, you just look around at the uh, internet, you look at the anger that we find in uh, all these discussions on blogs, we're, we're at war with each other, our culture is at war with each other. Politics are at war with each other. Everyone's an idiot. 
We, we, we judge everyone. I don't like that person. I don't like what they're doing. I'm angry with them. And there's so little forgiveness. There's, there's, there's no forgiveness out there anymore. Very little whatsoever. How do we find forgiveness? Well, in the Bible, it all stems from, first of all, realizing that we need to have forgiveness with God and being transformed by that. Therefore, to be able to offer, to be able to offer love and forgiveness and mercy and grace to other people. And this message, Jesus is saying here, is going to be proclaimed first starting in Jerusalem and then from there to all nations. And I want to make the case, I want to make the case this morning that there is no more important message that we could grasp. Let me just give you one illustration of that as we start. Just last year in Houston, in Texas, there was a former policeman who got on his bike one day, a nice day like this, rode into the, uh, into the park and found a cardiologist. It was all planned. The cardiologist rode his bike in that park at this time each day. He found a cardiologist there, a renowned cardiologist, who had been doctor for none other than President Bush. He rode up beside him, and he shot him dead. And when the police um, did research into this, investigated, they discovered that this former policeman had had a 20-year-old grudge with this cardiologist. His mother had been uh, treated, uh, had been under surgery under this cardiologist and had died on the surgery table. And for 20 years, this former policeman held this grudge. And one day, it was too much, and he went into the, into the park and shot him dead. No forgiveness. No forgiveness. How do we find forgiveness with God? And then how do we have a nation? How do we have a church? How do we have a community that lives in love and peace? and grace, and mercy, and unity, and joy. All these things come because of the risen Christ, if we will accept the message this morning. And that's what Luke is saying to us. This message that I'm preaching is on the authority of Jesus when he says, from this day, from Jerusalem, they'll proclaim this message of the forgiveness of sins. And he's writing it. You're not here by accident. He's writing it so that you might hear this message this morning. And Luke carefully constructs the story around three steps. There's the question, first of all, and then there's the answer, and then there's the message that I'm preaching this morning. First of all, the question. This is verses 36 and 37, and they've got many questions, and I want to say that to encourage you. You may have many questions. When I uh, was growing up, of course, I uh, grew up in England. There was a, a sports uh, TV program there that many of us used to like. It was called A Question of Sport. And what made it particularly funny was they put on the panel experts, sports stars, who would know everything about their sport, but would know nothing about some other sport. And they asked them questions about the other sport, and they frequently got it wrong, you see. Or perhaps it feels like that for you. You're, you're an expert in your own field. But when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to uh, what we're talking about this morning, you feel like you've got many questions. And what I want to say to you to encourage you is that's okay. Here they have many questions. And then Jesus stands among them. Remarkably, he stands among them. What does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't say, stop asking questions. He says, peace to you. You know, it's okay to have questions. If you don't have questions, how are you going to find the answer? The great Oxford professor C.S. Lewis had many questions. He was an atheist, and then he became a Christian. For many years, he thought that Christianity was nothing but a myth, 
that the story of the resurrection was just a myth. It was just a spring story. He'd, he'd heard other versions of it at other times, and uh, we, we just gather together because you know, now it's 75 degrees, and last week it was 35 or whatever it is. I'm like, thank goodness, let's get together and be happy. And he just thought it was a myth, but he realized that actually it was a true myth. And all the other stories in the world were actually pointing somewhere to this thing that actually happened. That Jesus actually physically raised, was raised from the dead. Physically raised from the dead. And if you don't have questions about that, I don't think you've got a brain. It's the most remarkable claim. Could it be true? And they've got questions. And if you've got questions, that's okay. I fully understand. I want the kind of church where people can be here with questions. For Christians, have questions too, of course. And if you're not a Christian, you'll have questions. Good. Jesus stands here and says, peace to you. It's okay. You've got to have questions. So first of all, the question, verses 36 and 37. Then, though, the answer that Jesus gives from verses 38 through to verse 43 or thereabouts in the middle of the passage. And, of course, the answer that Jesus gives is in his own person. So he stands right there and says, look, here I am. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Touch and see. And they're disbelieving for joy, it says. What does that mean? What it means is that, you see, the resurrection is never presented in the Bible as something like, well, of course they believe that. I mean, who wouldn't? It's always that they had so many questions, but they were forced by the evidence to accept it. So it's like, they just can't. Could it be true? It's just amazing. Really? And they're looking, it's like, wow, really? You know, I'm reading a biography of John Adams, and uh, his wife, Abigail Adams, was frightened of uh, making sailing trips across the ocean, but she went to be with her husband. She loved him so much, she traveled to Europe to be with him, and there was a huge storm, and of course she was very frightened, and then after the storm there was a great calm, and then she looked out over the sea, and she describes what she talks about through miles around the ship. There was what she described as a phosphorence of the ocean. It seemed, she said, as if the whole sea for miles around was on fire, and she'd, she'd heard about it, but she'd never seen it before, and what i read about that. I thought, could this be true? And looked into it and researched it and found out that yes, indeed, we now know that after a big storm at sea, you see there are these ocean creatures that have bioluminescence. That is, they have their own light within their own bodies. And with a big storm, they're stirred up. And yes, indeed, at certain times, in certain cases, you can look out and it looks as if the whole ocean is on fire with these organisms, with their own light. And she saw it and she's like, wow, could this be true? And she said, how great are thy works, O Lord? I can hardly believe it, though I'm seeing it and that's where they were and so what does Jesus do he says give me some fish and I'll eat that that'll show you it's, it's wonderful isn't it of course ghosts don't eat food but also they're fishermen so he's looking around the table say there's a piece of old haddock I'll try that haddocks are kind of fish by the way in case you didn't know <laughs> and so he eats and you say well okay so they saw and they believed but I haven't been there well, that's why we have the Bible. Here are the eyewitness accounts. You say, no one believes the Bible anymore. <laughs> you know, there is greater reason for accepting the historical reliability of the Scriptures today than there ever has been. We have the 24,000 manuscripts that have been discovered of the New Testament 
Luke has been shown over and over again to be a reliable historian. His second volume, Acts, where he describes, just as one example, the Asiarchs in Ephesus. He uses a technical word that for years it was thought he was a strange thing. He used that word. But then recently it's been discovered that actually Luke was right all along. Actually, in Ephesus they were called Asiarchs. And he was right. Over and over again, he's been true, proven historically reliable. We have, we have more evidence today for the historical reliability of the Bible than, than ever ever before. You say, well, it's an old book. I don't need old books. It's old. People who don't take the Bible seriously because it's old, I think, are a bit like people who would complain that they they don't need the sun in the sky because it's so old. It's out of date. But no, you should should accept the witnesses that are recorded in the Bible because they're old, even more because they're old, because it's been tried and tested over hundreds and thousands of years, and people have put it into practice and found it to be true. It should be a reason to accept it, not not reject it. You say, well, we're modern people these days. We we don't need this. We're scientific people. The science has disproved the Bible. I'm a scientist. I can't accept this. The the, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. You know, many Christians have been scientists, are scientists. The foundation for modern science was put in place by a lot of believers in God. A man called Sir Francis Bacon put in place many of the empirical views that have foundation of modern science. Yeah, it's true. The church made a mistake with Galileo. That's certainly true. A part of the church did at least. But Galileo remained a believer. And Galileo said this. He said, the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. And he's right. God has given us the Bible to show us how to have forgiveness of sins, how to go to heaven. He's given us a brain to figure out how airplanes fly and how to figure out this this scientific problem, that uh, that other scientific problem. but, But the Bible shows us how the most important thing of the world, how to have forgiveness of sins, how to have a a renewed relationship with each other as human beings, a relationship with God. That's what the Bible's about. You say we we live in the information age. I don't need this information. I've got Google. You know, there was a, a, a man called Sir Walter Scott who was a great uh, novelist uh, and uh, he um, wrote uh, dozens of books, famous for, for instance for Ivanhoe and other books and uh, perhaps hundreds of books. He collected a huge library, at least 15,000. It's, it's still there. You can go and visit in Scotland. It's one of the great treasures of Scotland. Sir Walter Scott, when he was uh, dying on his deathbed, uh, he uh, looked to one of his uh, people who was attending him and he said as he, as, he, as he was dying on his deathbed to one of his attendees, he said, bring me the book. And they were looking around this huge library and this man who'd written so many books, they said, which book do you mean? And so Walter Scott said, there is only one book, man, bring me the Bible. There's only one book. There's only one book. There's only one book that will show you how you can have forgiveness of sins if you accept the message this morning. There's only one book that can show you how you can therefore live a life of love in the power of the risen Christ that he comes in you by his spirit and you live a new way. There's only one book that can do that. Only one book. It's, it's, the, it's, it's this book. 
You say, well, there's no, there's no evidence outside the Bible that can show that Jesus is risen. It's just in the Bible. Well, there is, you know. Tacitus, the Greco-Roman historian, describes how when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, which confirms what the Bible says. Thallus, another ancient historian who was writing in A.D. 50, so very close to the time when Jesus died and rose again, describes how at Jesus' death, there was a great eclipse of the sun, which confirms also what the Bible says. Josephus, a Jewish historian, was uh, writing around that time as well and describes in a copies of this text that we have that come through the Arabic copies and therefore were not corrupted, so-called by Christians and reliable therefore, not given to any kind of bias. Josephus describes how the followers of Jesus said and claimed that they had seen Jesus after he died three days later and that he was alive. We have external corroboration. We have external confirmation. So much so that Thomas Arnold, who was professor of history at Oxford University, said that this, he said, I've been used throughout my life to research many historical facts and evidences, and I can say that without any doubt, the greatest fact and the most certain fact in all of human history is the great sign that God has given us by rising Jesus Christ from the dead. It actually happened. It actually happened. Aaron Clark, who was judge of the high court, said that he had many times convicted people on far less evidence than you have with the eyewitness accounts in front of you. And in his judgment, unreservedly, he said, unreservedly, he was able to say that these eyewitnesses were truthful men who had good evidence to substantiate their claims. Unreservedly, good evidence to substantiate their claims. It actually happened. You say, well, okay, fine. But we live in a relativistic age. There are many different religions. So what if it happened? (laughs) Did you know that at the time of Jesus and the Roman Empire, before this message of the forgiveness of sins that I'm preaching to you this morning, before that was proclaimed, the Roman Empire, it was unusual to find a sophisticated Roman family with more than one daughter because the Romans have the habit of killing unwanted children, and they particularly wanted boys, and they'd kill the girls specifically. They'd slit their throats. We've got letters describing father to a husband to his wife saying, kill that baby if it's a girl. They would expose them on hills and outside the city, all these babies, and the Christians came along and said, no, that is wrong, and decided to rescue those children, and they put a stop to it. Do you know that at the time where Jesus, before this message of the, the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins was preached, that, 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 the, that gladiators in the arenas, we, we see movies about it, we think it's just a game. It was not a game. It actually happened. There were people who very rarely volunteered to be gladiators. They were, they were slaves. They were people who had been captured in, in warfare. They were the poor, the outcasts, made to be gladiators, performed for the intent of the entitled rich and there they would kill each other and at the end of the fights they were half dead on the floor and the gladiator would look up to those who are watching to see what sign they would give whether they would have life or death and the Christians came along and said no we will not go to such entertainment no we will not partake in that and they put a stop to it it was wrong all because Jesus is risen and therefore there is life that is preached in his name and forgiveness of his sins for everyone. And therefore we love our, our, the slaves and the people of different races and the poor. D- did you know that in the time of Jesus before this message was preached, 
before the, the forgiveness of sins was offered as I'm offering it this morning, did you know that it was very hard for a poor person to ever get any proper medical attention? Oh, but the rich could go to a doctor, but not the poor. And so the Christians, studying Cappadocia, began to found hospitals for the poor. Now, that's not right, they said. They remembered Jesus, who had taken care of the poor and healed the sick. And so they started hospitals. They spread throughout Europe and every cathedral city. There were hospitals now. And still today, in America and all around the world, you can see hospitals that have been founded on that basis. that are called out to the names of the apostles. St. Luke's Hospital, St. Paul's Hospital, all because Jesus has risen and the message of, of forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in his name. And so therefore, we're transformed by the risen Christ. And we love our neighbors and we want to take care of them. Did you know? that in the time of Jesus, before this message was preached, before forgiveness of sins was offered in this kind of way, that that it was normal for women. Women, according to the um, 12 tablets that were the the foundation of the jurisprudence, the law of of the Roman world, the 12 tablets that have been destroyed, but we still have records of what much of they said that have been passed down through different documents. Those 12 tablets specified that children were the property of their fathers, but also their wives, the women, were also the property of their husbands. And the husbands could do what they liked with those women and frequently did. But the Christians came along and said, no, it's not right. We remember how Jesus treated women. He, he appeared first to women. They, 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 he loved them. He took care of them in all purity and propriety. No, we will not let women be treated that kind of way. And wherever this gospel that I'm preaching this morning has been proclaimed on the face of the planet, women have been set free. And wherever it is not proclaimed, women are still in slavery to patriarchal domination. But Christians say, no, we will not have it. We will not allow women to be treated that way. Why? Because of Christ. Because he is risen from the dead. Because he is Lord. Is that true? He is Lord and we will not stand for it. In our day and age, we will not stand for the me too abuse of women. We will not stand for it. And we will not stand for the way babies are treated and killed in this country. It is wrong and we will stand against it. Why? Because Jesus is Lord and we love him and we worship him and we follow him. Oh, it makes a difference. The question, the answer, and then the message. Verses 38 to verses 43 to 49 now as we go into the message. And the message itself that is proclaimed at that time is very simply, Jesus says it is for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. And he opens their mind that they might understand, that they might understand these things that have been said. You know, there are many different ways that people have put together the Bible. There are many different ways that they've tried to interpret the Bible. According to Jesus, as he opens their minds, the Bible is best understood in this simple way that it is all about how the Christ must suffer and rise again on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins is preached in his name as I'm preaching this morning. That is what the message is of the Bible because Jesus is risen and it has a transformative impact and a transformative effect. And... If you are to grasp that this morning, you need to have the same experience that those early disciples did. Your mind needs to be opened. You know, we Christians are not people of the closed mind. We're people of the open mind. Our mind needs to be open to the truth. And I can preach with as much 
energy and, and God-given power as the Lord will choose in his good grace to give me this morning. But unless he opens your mind, unless you ask, Lord, open my mind that I might see wondrous things in your law, you will not be able to see it. They'd heard him teach for many, many for years beforehand, but now he has risen and their minds were opened to see that it all hung on this great event. Everything, the Psalms, the prophets, Isaiah, David, everything was pointing to this great event where the Christ must suffer and then be risen from the dead on the third day. He must suffer. Why must he suffer? He must suffer because we're sinners. You say, I'm not a sinner. I've not done anything really wrong, nothing really too bad. According to Jesus, if you've ever had an angry thought in your mind, if you've ever wished that a certain person did not exist, if you ever thought, if I could get away with it, I would get that person out of here and do away with them, Jesus says such anger, such hate is really murder. If you ever looked at a woman, not once, but twice, but three times, and lusted over her, which means that if you could, you'd have her. If you could get away with it, you'd have her. If you ever done that for a man and said, if I could, I'd have him, then Jesus says, you've committed adultery. It's as good as committing adultery, because if you could get away with it, you'd do it. Have you ever said to yourself, you know, I wish I had that house, I wish I had that car, I wish I had uh, all the money that person has. The Bible calls that covetousness. Lack of contentment in the providence of God, what he's given you. Wishing you were somewhere else, someone different, doing something else with someone else's gifts is covetousness. And the Bible says, if you've broken the law at one point, you've broken it at every point. Why? Because our God is a holy God. He is a God of righteousness and justice. And the truth is, and this is why there's so little forgiveness in this world, we think we're righteous. We discover someone else has done something wrong and then we rush to tell the whole world how wrong they are without realizing that we are sinners, that we have done something wrong, that we are not right, that we have broken the law. If we can realize that, we will be not so quick to judge. No, we have broken the law. And so the Christ must suffer because God is not only a holy God and an awesome God and a fearful God and a just God, he's also a loving God. And therefore, in his great love and compassion, through his blood, he took the wrath that we deserved. It is the blood that cleanses us, cleanses us from our sins. We have in his blood the redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of his grace. His grace being the unmerited favor that he pours out towards us purely as a gift purely as something that he's offering to us no strings attached purely as a gift for us to receive this morning this forgiveness of sins that's why he must suffer and he must rise again why because he's going to prove that actually death has no victory that sin has been defeated we do not worship a dead lord you know sometimes I think we Christians almost go around as if our lord Jesus is dead he's not dead he's alive He's not dead. He's alive. His spirit is here now. And if you're a Christian, it's not so much you doing things for Jesus. It is Jesus by his spirit working in you. He is now at work through you. He looks out through your eyes. He, 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 he offers help to other people through your hands, with your, with your feet. He runs after to help someone. He's now at work in your, in, in your if you let him, if you if ask him to fill you with your spirit, you now have the spirit of Christ in you, working through you to help the poor and the disadvantaged and those who are being outcasts and those who are being hurt. All because, yes, the Christ must suffer because we need to be, if, if we're to receive any forgiveness of sins, the wrath of God is taken by, by God himself in Christ out of his great love, but now he's risen 
risen from the dead to prove that he has defeated death and sin. And he pours out this power that is he's described here and is talked about more in the book of Acts. And we'll look at more next week. This power that he pours out is the presence of the Spirit of Christ in you. So that now it's not you doing things for Christ. It's Christ in you and a work through you and giving you all the love and forgiveness and mercy and grace and acceptance to other people, all different kinds, all because of the power of the risen Christ. And what that means, Jesus says, is now from Jerusalem, there'll be a message of, of forgiveness of sins that is proclaimed. And it's that message that I'm offering to you this morning on the authority of Christ, by his word, and I trust the power of his spirit. I, this morning, have the right to offer to you forgiveness of sins. Just think of that. I can offer it to you. The proclamation of the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Not in my name. In the name of Jesus Christ. I can offer it to you. One of the great Swedish leaders was a man called Bo Gitz. And unlike many uh, Christian leaders, he also wrote novels. And many of them are very good. And one of them has been translated, at least one of them has been translated into English. And it's called The Hammer of God. And in this book, he describes a particular preacher who was visiting his people in his parish. And the preacher would knock on the different doors and try to offer to them what I'm offering to you this morning, which is pardon, the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. And the preacher said this as he was going around. He felt like he was a prison warden offering, having a, he felt like he was a prison warden with a letter of pardon in his pocket to offer to all his prisoners. That's what it is. I have in my pocket a letter of pardon I can offer to each one of you. The forgiveness of sins. It's a letter of pardon. Do you want it? If so, you'll need to repent. To say, I'm so sorry, Lord, for what I've done. You're right. I'm, I'm not righteous. I am a sinner. I've broken your law in all sorts of different ways. Please forgive me. You need to repent. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. And if you do, I have a letter of pardon for you. It's for you, from God himself, in the name of Jesus Christ, if you'll receive it. You know, there was um, one instance in American history when a presidential pardon was actually rejected. Happened in Pennsylvania in the 19th century. There were two men who committed some awful crime. One man hanged, the other man had influential friends, and uh, they talked to the president at the time, and the president issued to this man a presidential pardon. And they came to his prison cell and they offered him this pardon from the president and the man refused. We don't know why he refused. Perhaps he was a proud man. Perhaps he thought he'd done nothing wrong, but he refused. And of course, then they had a crisis. What are they going to do? The president has pardoned the person, but he's not accepting it. What, what should we do? The case made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decided that even though the president had issued a pardon, if that man rejected it, he was not pardoned, he was condemned, and he hanged. I have a pardon for you. I have a pardon for you. But you must accept it. Will you accept it? Will you accept it? If you do, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the risen Christ will come into you with power and give you fresh life. 
The message of Easter is not just when you die, you go to heaven. The message of Easter is that now Jesus is risen and we therefore who believe in him are in him and he by his spirit is in us and we therefore have resurrection power to love our wives, to love our husbands, to serve our children, to work for Jesus at the factory, in the engineering business, and as a lawyer, to serve Jesus, to love the poor and the disenfranchised, to protect the weak and the helpless. Because now we have the Spirit of Christ within us and it can transform our world again today just like it did in those early days when the Christians first proclaimed the message of the gospel. Well, that's my belief that it can do so again. If we, if we, if we accept, if we accept the, the pardon, the letter of pardon, we accept it. Let me close uh, with this. There's a small French village called Chambon-sur-Lignon. I'm sure I've pronounced it wrong. A lot of us are pretty bad at our French. Winston Churchill was famously bad at his, at his, at his French. He, he thought he was good at it, but he never really was. And he insisted on giving speeches in, in French to French people. One time in France, he gave a speech in French where he said, Quand je regarde mon derrière, which he thought said when I, he thought it meant when I look behind me. But some of us know when I look behind me, but actually means when I look at my behind. <laughs> so it may not actually be chambon sur lignon, but it's the best I can do. There was a researcher of all this unforgiveness that's going on in our world who was looking at what was happening in the Second World War uh, during Fra- occupied France and was in despair as he was looking at this. Indeed, he was in despair of his own life. He's looking at all the unforgiveness, at all the hate, at all the murder, at all the suffering. And I have empathy with that, don't you? You look around at the world today and you just see horrible, horrible thing. You see people fighting at each other. You see even Christians accusing each other of things as if, as if a Christian is righteous in his, own, in his own merits. We of all people should know that we have no righteousness whatsoever but for the blood of Jesus. Isn't that true? We have no right to judge another person. That's God's job. We must offer forgiveness to people. And he, he was looking at this, at this, this front, occupied France and just seeing anger and hate and War and bloodshed. And then he came across this little village, Chambon saw Lignon. And in this village is a village of Huguenots. Now, what you've got to know is the Huguenots are a persecuted people. They're a Christian people. They've been persecuted for a long time. Thousands of them being killed. If any people on the face of the planet have a reason to be bitter and not offer to forgiveness, it is the Huguenots. Many of them came to America and Canada and other countries where they could get rescue and relief from their persecution. But thousands and thousands of them were killed. But there's this little village in France, Chambon-sur-Lignon, which is a Huguenot village, a village of many real Christians. And in that place, this researcher suddenly found what he called the rarity of pure goodness, or what I would call the actuality of the gospel applied to forgive and act mercy, because we have received forgiveness from God himself through the atoning blood of Jesus and in the power of the risen Christ. And in that village, that one little village More people were rescued than in any other place in France. That one little village rescued 5,000 Jewish children. One little village. And in many ways, it saved that researcher's life to come across it. These people who love Jesus. Jesus had changed their lives. 
And they offer love and forgiveness and mercy and rescue to all those around them. And you can have that. You can have that power. You can have the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the risen Christ reverberating through you, energizing you, living within you. You can have forgiveness of sins. I have a pardon for you. In Christ alone, in whom there is no Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, we are all one. In Christ alone, you can have that experience, that pardon, that reality, that actual objective new relationship with Jesus, with God on high. You can have that, that pardon, that forgiveness of sins, that changed life. You can have that. In Christ alone, you can have it. If you're accepted. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, I do pray that, that many of us here this morning will receive that letter of pardon. And in Christ alone, we will be energized to stand up for you, to live for you, to serve you in new and powerful ways to your great glory. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.